Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. My dad did say that she had been acting strange for the past two weeks. Something was off with her. It makes me think there was something really wrong going on because I feel she knew something bad about someone, whether it would ruin reputation or money. She knew something that someone didn't want to get out. It's early in the morning, the Friday after Thanksgiving, 1999, in Lansing, Illinois. 44-year-old Sharon Miller arrives at a local dry cleaners where she's worked for several years. Sharon talks on the phone for about 20 minutes with an employee at another dry cleaners in neighboring Indiana until she has to hang up. Her first customer of the day has just arrived. A short time later, a frantic 911 call comes into the Lansing Police Department. A body's been found at the dry cleaners, sprawled on the bathroom floor. It's Sharon, and she's been shot execution style with two bullets at close range. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, Black Friday. Lansing, Illinois, a small town of just under 30,000 people, is located about a half hour south of Chicago. We averaged for many, many years one homicide a year. We're probably around three or four right now at this time. Chuck Whedon is a sergeant with the Lansing police. Back in 1999, he was a rookie detective and vividly remembers the homicide case that would haunt the department for nearly a quarter century. The call came in approximately 8.52 a.m. was the time of the assignment for the officer that arrived first on scene. This was very unusual for the area, downtown Lansing, very quiet. This is the day after Thanksgiving. The murder victim is Sharon Miller, an employee at a local dry cleaners who is just starting her shift that morning. When I first walked into the dry cleaners, it was a normal entryway with several counters and racks for clothes. I was surprised I did not know that they don't clean anything at this facility. They take things and ship them elsewhere. But when I walked into the back area, it looked normal. It looked very clean. Nothing was really out of place. There certainly wasn't any type of a struggle. And when I walked around the corner to see the bathroom, I saw Sharon on the floor of the bathroom, obviously deceased. Detective Whedon immediately begins making notes about every detail he observes. He's not sure what is or is not a clue to what has occurred. It certainly wasn't ransacked. I couldn't tell by looking at the cash register. It was not forced open. There was not any debris or anything scattered around. At first, it looked like it could have been suicide if they had found a weapon underneath her. She wasn't moved until the coroner arrived. 
When they roll the body over, no weapon is found, and they see that Sharon has actually been shot twice. She did have two holes, small caliber bullet holes, on the side of her head, so that made it likely not to be a suicide, although I have seen suicides where a subject has shot themselves twice. She did have a wound to her hand, her finger, which is probably a defensive holding her hand above her head, and that bullet had gone through her finger and into her head. We believe that the offender was within three feet of her when he shot her. She was probably to the side of him, judging by the entrance to the bathroom, the doorway, and the way she fell and the fact that the wounds were in the side of her head. She was probably facing sideways. As police begin their investigation, they find evidence that this homicide may have been a robbery that took a fatal turn. We had learned later that she had a gold purse that would have contained her wallet, credit cards, a little bit of cash, and her cell phone. That was not located inside the cleaners. We had learned later that money from inside the register, approximately $130, was taken from the register-only paper, so it appears to be a robbery. There was a lot of change still left in the register, and there was a deposit bag that was next to the register in the counter. Not obvious, but if you were looking for it, you could have found it that was not taken, so that deposit from two days before was still left there. I did observe that she had not a ton of jewelry, but she had several chains and she had gold rings and bracelets. At that time, probably $1,000 worth of jewelry on her. If it was a robbery, why didn't the perpetrator take cash and other valuables that were in plain sight? Was he in a panic to escape quickly after killing the lone witness? Or could there be some other explanation for Sharon's missing purse and the raided cash register? I don't know who would rob a dry cleaners, think that there's any sum of money. A lot of people pay in checks. Back then, there was cash more than debit cards, but still, you're not going to find a whole lot of cash at a dry cleaners as opposed to a bigger retail store that's going to be open with a lot more money. It kind of says that the motive there was not robbery, that it could be staged, it could be made to look like a robbery, and the real motive is to kill the victim. If this is just for a robbery or maybe a possible sexual assault, there's no reason to shoot twice. This seems like, judging by the caliber weapon, which is a 25, which is a small caliber, to shoot someone twice, your intention is to kill. The notion that someone would target 44-year-old Sharon Miller for a point-blank assassination seems unlikely to detectives. Her only daughter, Nicole, was 21 at the time of the murder. It was a Friday morning. I had a full day booked at the salon where I worked. And the phone rang. It was my grandmother. I said, hello. She said, hi, Nicole, this is Graham. Are you going to be home? And I said, yes. She said, okay, I need to come talk to you. And she hung up. And I thought, man, that was the weirdest thing. About 15 minutes later, the doorbell rang. And it was a glass front door. And I saw her standing outside the door with one of the detectives from the Lansing Police Department that I knew and recognized because he had gone to the same church as our family did growing up. So I immediately opened the door and said, what is going on? And then he just goes right out and says, I'm sorry to tell you that your mother is deceased. 
So obviously, I was in complete shock. Nicole immediately flashes back to one of the last times she saw her mother alive. It was just six weeks earlier at Nicole's wedding. The wedding was so close to when she died. Those are the pictures that we have of her, you know, the most recent, and that's the dress that we buried her in. She was about 5'6", blue eyes, short blonde hair, very pretty. Of course, I'm biased, but just medium build. She liked to dress nice, liked to have her hair done, her nails done, jewelry and such. She cared about her appearance. She wasn't like completely outgoing, but if you talked to her, she would talk to you. So I'd say she was a little shy at first, but not once you got to know her. She loved to laugh, loved to have fun, played a lot of cards. We didn't do a lot of stuff out of the house all the time because we always didn't have the money for that kind of stuff. Sharon's romantic life had its share of ups and downs. She was married three times, but everything seemed to change when she met Charles, her third husband. My mom really was, I would say, the happiest I had ever seen her. And a lot of that had to do with Charlie. She met Charlie at the bowling alley, I believe. They were on uh, bowling leagues together. And he definitely was the first real father figure I had come into my life. He was great. He was always great. She finally had found someone to spend the rest of her life with. And he came into the picture when I was 10. And they were actually about to celebrate their 10-year wedding anniversary on December 1st. So they had missed that by about four or five days when she was killed. In the quiet community of Lansing, Sharon's homicide is a bracing shock. Michael Rodriguez was assigned to work the cold case with Detective Whedon in 2013. At the time of the murder, he was a 17-year-old police cadet. So I grew up actually in Lansing, Illinois, and I was in high school when this happened. And actually a friend of mine was related to her ex-husband from high school. So that's kind of how I heard about this case. So it was very impactful at that time because there wasn't a lot of violent crime in Lansing, especially homicides. So for something like that to happen the day after Thanksgiving, especially in the morning, was just very shocking to the community. Sharon Miller, she was killed the morning of November 26, 1999, the day after Thanksgiving. From our timeline, I'm seeing that at approximately 6.50 a.m., she left her home in Lansing to go to work at the dry cleaners. It was less than five minutes away. She signed in at the computer at 6.54 a.m. And then she actually printed out a receipt from her computer at 6.58. And then at about 7.06 a.m., she called a fellow employee at a different branch to speak about a dry cleaning jacket. They talked about how their holiday was and whatnot. And according to her, it was just a normal conversation. They were talking for a good 15 to 20 minutes. There were no customers in there. It's early in the morning. She just opened up. Again, it's the day after Thanksgiving. There's not a whole lot of business. And she stated, I have a customer. I'll call you back. And that's the last she heard from her. What happened after Sharon hangs up the phone is the central mystery of this case. Investigators learn that a customer entered the dry cleaners around 8.40 a.m. He found the shop empty and was going to leave a note 
but instead decided to inquire at the hair salon next door. He walked into the hair salon and he spoke with the employees and said, hey, do you guys happen to know where the lady is that works next door? Nobody's there. So the employees walked over to the dry cleaners along with the customer looking for Sharon. When they went in there, they discovered Sharon's body in the bathroom of the dry cleaners. They freaked out because they didn't know if the offender was possibly this man who notified them. They immediately ran out. They ran into the beauty salon. They locked the door, and there was a woman that was already there to get her hair done because she was getting married that morning. She immediately ran into the closet, and she used her cell phone to contact her father. And one of the most bizarre things in this whole case is that her father was a past lover of the victim. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. During her second marriage, Sharon had been involved in a brief affair with another man. After getting the call from his daughter about Sharon's body being found, Detectives learned that the man responded in a surprising way. We were able to get his information and we talked to him. And he said that, well, she called and said there's a dead woman next door at the dry cleaners and she's in a closet. And he decides to go to Ace Hardware, which is about a block away from the crime scene, and get a repair kit to repair his glasses. And he never went over by his daughter. He went home and fixed his glasses. I don't know why he would react like that. Uh, there's so many things you can try to put together on why he did that. But it was checked out. He did actually go to the hardware store. It was on video. It was after a murder occurred that he went to the hardware store. So yeah, we, we don't exactly know why, why he did that. Obviously, is very interesting. Then detectives uncover another suspicious detail about the former lover. Sharon had mentioned to her husband that she saw this man drive by her house a couple times, slowly. When questioned, the man claims it was just a coincidence. He says that one of his daughters worked at a school near Sharon's home, so he was often driving in that area. He did, however, have a large amount of guns at his residence. Those guns were looked at by the detectives at that time, and none of them were found to be the weapon that killed Sharon. With no evidence tying the man to Sharon's murder, detectives focus on other suspects including Sharon's current husband, Charles. While Charles appears to be a grieving spouse, detectives find it suspicious that he arrived at the crime scene at about the same time as police, even though he was never notified about the murder. Was this just a coincidence? Later, when interviewing him about that day, he said he had stayed home that day because of a health disability due to hernia surgery. He took a shower and then watched a movie at 7 a.m., it was a two-hour movie. It finished at 9 a.m. He then realized that Sharon had not called him. She usually calls him at about 8 a.m. to wake him up and then asks him to bring her coffee. 
So he attempted to call Sharon twice, but got no answer. And at that time, he drove to the cleaners and saw the police. When they try to confirm Charles's story, investigators discover some troubling inconsistencies. He had stated he was watching some type of a movie. They named what the movie was, but they could not find that in any television guide back then that showed that movie was playing. Based on phone records, he said he had called the cleaners a couple times, but there was no records of those calls. But that could be because they weren't connected. You know, she never answered. But yeah, she was dead at that time. We talked to her close friends. We talked to Nicole, her only daughter. And everybody thought that they had a great relationship. The only thing we had was one friend of Sharon's who jokingly said that if anybody was going to kill anybody, it'd be her killing him. And just in jest. So we had no reason, nobody suspected that Charlie had any involvement. There's nothing in me that would ever think that he would ever do anything like that. He loved my mom. He was devastated without her. Detectives delve into Sharon's life, looking for any secrets that may have led to her murder. We looked into financials, obviously. They weren't rich, but they certainly weren't struggling. We had no knowledge of any vices at all. She was a social drinker. The gambling was very minimal. They weren't in debt. Police also set up a roadblock on the street in front of the cleaners to question motorists, hoping that one of them might have passed by the business that Friday morning and perhaps saw something that could help the investigation. We had a couple of witnesses that identified her car identified the owner of the beauty salon's car, and then there was a blue boxy style, we believe would be something similar to a Chevy celebrity back then, late 80s, that was described driving away from the scene or parked in front for a short time. We had received leads later on with people that had a similar car. The person that gave the description of the car was not really a car person, and if you know, obviously we didn't have any type of plate. A second witness provides a more detailed new clue. He saw a male subject walking out of the cleaners that morning wearing a leather jacket and had dry cleaning clothes draped over his arm, which we found interesting given that there were some dry cleaning clothes missing from the cleaners that day. We theorized that perhaps if that was the suspect, perhaps he was using the dry cleaning clothes to hide the large gold purse that he removed. I think that he knew that it would be really strange to see a man walking out with a large gold purse. The black leather jacket triggers a closer look at Sharon's second husband. The description they gave was very similar to her second husband. And when he was interviewed and came in on station, he had a unique black leather jacket. It was never positively identified, but that was something of interest because that second husband really had no alibi. He was not working that day and claimed that he was just driving around that day. As police exhaust their list of suspects, they identify another person of interest who was right in front of them on the day of the murder. When Sharon's body was found, the owner of the dry cleaners was called and arrived at the shop right away, just as detectives were processing the scene. He assisted with determining what time phone calls were made, determining what time she punched in for the day, and determining how much money was missing out of the register. He was also able to tell us exactly who she spoke to at what store so that we can contact them and interview them. He was very cooperative. He was saddened, and he was willing to do whatever he could to help us find the offender. But a 
prominent member of the Lansing community, later comes forward with a strange tip. So he went up to my grandparents and said, have they ever solved your daughter's case? And they said, no. And he said, well, have they ever investigated the owner of the dry cleaners? Because I think they need to investigate him. On top of that random comment, the owner's behavior in the days and months after the murder strikes Sharon's daughter, Nicole, as suspicious. There were other things that went down that happened in that year after my mother's murder in the owner's life that just seemed really fishy. He did not have any security cameras in his stores, obviously, when this happened. Otherwise, there would have been camera footage. She was alone, and he would not change his policy to have more than one worker at one time. So then I just know he closed up shop and left town. Then he filed for bankruptcy. Then his wife filed for divorce. Then it was rumored that he was addicted to pornography. And then he moved away from the area, which to me was just a whole lot of stuff to go down in a very short amount of time to not sit right. One thing new that we did learn is upon relooking at this case, we interviewed one of the employees I believe she was a manager at the time of the cleaners. And she indicated that around the time that Sharon was killed, the owner was asking her to fire Sharon and then would keep changing his mind. So basically she described it as fire her, no, don't fire her, fire her, no, don't fire her. And she didn't know why. She thought that was bizarre. So there was one instance where after my mom had been killed, Charlie ran into this lady in the grocery store and she had made some kind of comment about Yeah, well, Sharon never did know how to keep her mouth shut. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little tidbit. Investigators hear rumors that the owner of the dry cleaners was distributing pornography out of the business, a secret that Sharon had allegedly learned about. It gives the owner a motive, but there's no evidence to prove it one way or another. Detective Whedon also notes that the owner didn't follow up with police to check on the investigation as the years went by. I think there's a large possibility that something illegal could have been going on out of the dry cleaners and that she had found out about it and that it was something really bad that bothered her a lot. And I feel like she could have possibly said something to someone else to have tipped off that she knew something. I don't know. I mean, I wish she just would have quit but that wasn't the case. Throughout the investigation, there's been one clue that detectives have held back from the public. It's what they call guilty knowledge, something only the killer would know, and it could be used to confirm his guilt. But now, 23 years later, Detective Whedon is ready to reveal the exact nature of that clue in the hope that it will unlock the mystery of Sharon's murder. The clue is a dry-cleaning ticket that was found strategically placed at the scene. One part of this case that has intrigued all of the detectives, there was a ticket that Sharon had written, who we believe was the person that murdered her, or at least was the name that that person gave. And that name was Nick Charles. And we certainly looked into every Nick Charles that we could possibly look into. And this bizarre coincidence that her daughter's name is Nicole and her husband's name is Charles, We didn't know if that had anything to do with anything, and and we held that pretty tight because that is the piece of evidence that really only the actual murderer would know about. 
but because there's been so much time going by, we would like to release that at this point. And it was kind of interesting, the positioning of this receipt, because it was partially off of the counter, almost like it was to draw your attention to it. Like half of the receipt was sticking like in the air off the counter. And I believe it indicated that Nick Charles was submitting one jacket to the dry cleaners. So there was an exhaustive search for Nick Charles that did not come up with anything. It could be an alias. There's a uh, famous character by the name of Nick Charles from book series. So it could be a fan of that character. But the transaction was never completed. There was not a Nick Charles in the system anywhere. So we don't know exactly who Nick Charles is. We don't know if the killer said that's his name or what. We didn't even know definitively if Sharon wrote that herself. It is believed to be Sharon's handwriting. A handwriting expert did look at it and couldn't confirm absolutely. Sharon did write in cursive most of the time, and part of it is in cursive, but not all of it. It was incomplete, according to the owner of the dry cleaners. She hadn't put the rest of the information, but we certainly don't know if that's the point. Maybe a weapon was pulled out or she was pushed to the back or something like that. So we do believe it was Sharon's handwriting, but it's not absolutely certain. Could the killer be toying with investigators by leaving this clue behind? No one has been able to identify Nick Charles or figure out why and how that name got on the laundry ticket. But police are hoping now, with the public's help, it might spur a new avenue of leads in the case. A lot of our homicides that I've worked, we can identify a suspect pretty soon and there's only one suspect or one person of interest. This case is different because... We've got four or five persons of interest. We definitely believe that she didn't know who the person was that killed her, but that doesn't rule out the fact that it was somebody hired by somebody she knows. Was Sharon Miller's murder the random act of a stranger or a carefully planned hit by someone close to her? Everyone involved in the case has their own theory about who took Sharon's life. I believe that it wasn't a robbery. It was made to look like a robbery, but they didn't do a very good job of that. And I believe she was watched for weeks for someone to know that she would be there by herself very early in the morning. And I believe that she was killed. I believe it was a hit. The biggest person of interest in this would be the man that she had an affair with for many years with his daughter being next door and her wedding being that day. He would have had an excuse to be in the area. She's in the closet calling him on her cell phone and he doesn't bother to even stop by. He goes to get his glasses repaired or get a repair kit for his glasses. It just seemed like he had something to hide. She was shot with a 25 automatic and this man had owned at least two 25 automatics. He was cooperative with everything, but he just seemed like a very strange person that to me is the biggest person of interest. Somebody knows something, you know, somebody said something to someone or someone knows about a relationship that maybe Sharon had with someone that may not have come forward. Somebody just needs to call the police department and just share that little bit of information that could lead us in the right direction. We have a little bit to work with. I think if we had just a little bit more, this could be solved. 23 years later, 
Nicole comforts herself with memories of her mother and still hopes the mystery will be solved. We had just been together the day before. It was Thanksgiving. We had a small family gathering at my husband's parents' house with his parents, my parents, and one set of grandparents from each side. We had a really great day. It was one of the best Thanksgivings I've ever had. We laughed and ate and just had a really good time. I actually had fallen asleep on the couch and didn't really fully wake up to say goodbye when they had left, not knowing that that would be the last time that I would ever see my mom alive. I would love for justice to be served and whoever was responsible for this to be caught. I feel so strongly that someone was paid to kill her, that I'm more focused on finding the person that paid to have this done and maybe not so much even the person that pulled the trigger. But somebody knows something and they just haven't come forward and said anything. If you have any information about the murder of Sharon Miller, call the Lansing Police Department at 708-895-7150 or submit a tip at unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. Mia ran in the room and startled me. Mama, I'm scared. Somebody's knocking on the window. And I said, Mia, did you see your daddy? She said, no, Mama, something's wrong. Daddy's not in there. So I went to the door and I was like, who is it? One of the detectives broke that news. Stefan was dead. And then they added murder, shot, and all of that just closed in on me. And all I could do was just call on Jesus. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Mirror Productions and Cadence 13, an Odyssey company. It is executive produced by Terry Dunn-Muir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Christine Lenig, Courtney Ennis, and Bill Schultz. The story producer for this episode was Joanna Brooks, and it was edited by Paul Yates. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil and Andy Jaskowitz. Production support by Sean Cherry, Ian Mont, and Ava Fenneberger. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 62 of Unsolved Mysteries.